Hello, and welcome once again to the Main Point Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Giles. And Tracy Giles. In today's podcast, we will be discussing the issue of whether Christians should have the freedom to consume alcohol. Our goal will be to respond to this idea by outlining the reasons we oppose it, both logically and theologically. So let's dive right into the discussion as we attempt to correct any flawed ideologies around surrounding this subject of Christians and alcohol. Why shouldn't Christians support the consumption of alcohol? Doesn't the Bible condone its use? Well, the term condone is what I have issue with here because it means to overlook, forgive, or disregard. And although the Bible does forgive sin, mistakes, and transgressions, it in no way overlooks or disregards the use and consumption of alcohol amongst Christians. By using the Bible to condone the use of alcohol, a person is unknowingly opening the door to Christians engaging in more many other vices, for instance. Think about it. If we choose to use the Bible to license the consumption of alcohol amongst Christians, why not also use it to license the consumption of other recreational drugs that don't appear to prohibit uh, or be prohibited in the scriptures? Things such as marijuana, cocaine, heroin, you name it. Now, the argument can be made in favor of any of these, especially if one considers the fact that in America, for instance, there is a push amongst many of our politicians to decriminalize the use of recreational drugs, just as alcohol was decriminalized in the early 1900s. The decriminalization of alcohol in the early 1900s in America was the result of the failure of prohibition. So why shouldn't Christians support the consumption of alcohol? Well, we shouldn't be so quick to downgrade the virtues of prohibition, also known as the temperance movement. Many don't realize that it was initiated by the church in the early 1800s, which is where the term temperance movement comes from, basing it on verses from the books of Galatians and 2 Peter in the King James Version of our Bible, which reads as follows in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And also Second Peter chapter 1 verse 5 through 7. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. Now, prohibition eventually became part of the U.S. Constitution in the early 1900s. It was ratified in 1919 as part of the 18th Amendment and was repealed in 1933 as part of the 21st Amendment. The reason for its eventual repeal was due to the rampant crime increase at the hands of those who chose to engage in the illegal production and sale of alcohol, also known as liquor, which is where the term bootlegging comes from. Now, prohibition also led to the proliferation of illegal drinking meetup locations known as speakeasies. These meetup locations are very similar in nature to what exists in our modern illegal drug trade, which has what is known as drug houses, where individuals meet up, so to speak, to get high. Now, what's interesting is that some of the same arguments used to abolish prohibition in the early 1900s or the same arguments used today to decriminalize recreational drugs such as marijuana, cannabis, heroin, and cocaine. And surprisingly, many professing Christians agree with this logic and support dr drug decriminalization. 
Unfortunately, instead of highlighting the virtues of, of the church during the temperance movement of the 1800s and 1900s, many professing Christians have joined sides with those who sought to legalize alcohol in order to profit from its sale and consumption. All of this in spite of the known negative societal effects that comes with alcohol consumption. Makes me wonder whose side these Christians are really on. Are they seeking to build a pure and righteous church? Or are they seeking to build a church that looks more like the world around them? To those Christians who are pro-alcohol consumption, I would encourage them to consider not only the things that they do, but also how those very things can have a broader negative impact on the society at large, particularly the Church of Jesus Christ. Jesus had this to say about tempting and leading others into sin, which I find interesting. In Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through 47. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where there worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Very convicting words. You know, even if a Christian feels justified biblically to consume alcohol, it doesn't give them the right to advocate its consumption to everyone else. Doing so could lead to major detrimental consequences to those who, individuals who also choose to consume alcohol um, because of that influence. James, the brother and apostle of Jesus, had this to say about the caution one should take when attempting to teach others biblical doctrine regarding any subject. James chapter 3 verse 11. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Very strong warning there. Isn't it practically impossible to avoid the consumption of alcohol? Doesn't all fruit contain some level of fermentation and therefore is alcoholic? Actually, that's not the case. The Bible only uses the terms wine and strong drink when it refers to alcohol. However, when you, using these same terms, the Bible distinguishes between two different stages of drinks derived from grapes in particular, fermented and unfermented. This can be clearly seen by taking a look at the history of the modern English term wine throughout the centuries, as it's been translated from various biblical languages, including Old English, Latin, Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. Now, one great resource I would recommend to those who desire solid biblical scholarship surrounding this subject is the book Wine in the Bible, a biblical study on the use of alcoholic beverages by Samuel Bakaachi, published in 1989. You can find it on Amazon, actually. Didn't Jesus approve of the drinking of alcohol in John chapter 2? Not at all. To believe this is to believe that Jesus gave those at the wedding in John chapter 2 a license to drink alcohol to their field. This logic, by the way, would make Jesus equivalent to a modern-day bartender. 
And if that's the case, should we also assume that Jesus is okay with the consumption of beer, vodka, gin, rum, etc.? Because all of these are also derived from fermented plants? I would like to point out that the Greek term used to translate our English word wine in John chapter 2 is Strong's G3631, which is oinos. And it could actually mean fermented or unfermented unfermented drink, as I mentioned earlier. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for instance, oinos is used to translate the Hebrew word Strong's H8492 tirosh, which in Hebrew means grape juice that is new and fresh not old, decayed, and fermented. Therefore, the term oinos is a generic term in this sense. It can be used either way, depending, of course, on the context. Kind of like saying in our modern time, Google something, right? Google something simply means to search for it on the internet, even though the individual may not be using Google at all to perform the search. They may be using Microsoft Bing or DuckDuckGo or something else for that matter. In the same way, the Greek term used to translate wine in our English Bible can also be used in a generic sense. The same is true with the Hebrew term Strong's H3190, Yayin, and the Latin term Vinum, which can be found in the um, Vulgate, which is a Latin translation of the Bible. Unfortunately, many of the translators of the King James Bible chose to translate it in a way that refers to fermented drink, based not on the text of Scripture, but on their personal preferences. Didn't ancient cultures have a difficult time preserving freshly squeezed grape juice? Actually, that's not the case. Historically, cultures such as the Romans, the Greeks, and the Jews, the ancient cultures, had many ways of preserving grape juice without allowing it to ferment. This was typically done through boiling it, filtration, temperature control under 40 degrees, and the use of sulfur, the fumes from sulfur anyway. We must remember that many of these ancient societies possessed great technology, some of which is still in use today. Wasn't the term good wine used in John 2 referring to its high alcohol content? No, not at all. To say that what Jesus used in John 2 was considered good wine, I'm doing air quotes here, due to its high alcohol content is based purely on our modern understanding of the term. However, when it comes to interpreting scripture, we should not interpret it based on our present day context, but from the historical context in which it was written. By using our modern understanding of the term good wine, which is descriptive of its high alcohol content, we we would have to conclude that Jesus was responsible for the intoxication of the guests at the party, if that's the case. This conclusion could be particularly true when one considers the high volume of good wine that he provided at the wedding. The Bible says it was six stone jars full, or 180 gallons, according to John chapter 2, Verse 6. Now, would any of us at all at any time actually accuse Jesus of doing such a thing? Would Jesus do something that could have easily caused the party attendees to fall into the sin of drunkenness? Wouldn't that disqualify him as a sinless sacrificial lamb of God? Why would Jesus risk compromising his character in such a way? We must remember that in our modern society, Bartenders can be sued for such a behavior, particularly if that patron leaves the bar and they're involved in a traffic accident due to their drunkenness. Now, a better course of logic to follow in these verses in John chapter 2 would be to understand that the term good wine was descriptive of grape juice that was fresh and did not contain decay or fermentation. 
Grape juice is much easier to drink and doesn't have negative effects on the brain and body as it does when it begins to decay through fermentation. Unfermented grape juice, i.e. wine as it's translated, satisfies both the hunger and the thirst and does not inflame the passions the way that it does once fermentation begins to set in. So the good wine that Jesus provided was referring to something that was fresh from the vine and unfermented, which is more likely why it's called good. When Jesus used the parable of the old and new wineskins in Matthew 9, does this show that he regularly made alcoholic wine through fermentation? Not really. I highly doubt that any wineskin would be able to stand up to the pressure exerted by the gases produced during the fermentation process. Remember, it's decay. During this time in history, fermentation was actually done in large open jars, not in sealed wineskins. These large earthen jars were called doliums in ancient Rome. Instead, newly freshly squeezed grape juice, translated wine in our English Bible, was stored in new skins in order to prevent it from decaying and fermenting. Freshly squeezed grape juice, translated wine again in our Bibles, would have been initially boiled or filtered to prevent fermentation and immediately stored and sealed in skins in order to keep the air out and thus preventing decay and fermentation. Now when this new unfermented grape juice, translated wine in our English Bibles, was eventually poured out, some of the old residual matter remaining in the skins would mix with oxygen causing fermentation. If any freshly squeezed grape juice, again translated wine in our Bibles, was subsequently poured into these used skins, it would immediately begin to ferment, causing the used skins to burst open. Which is why freshly squeezed grape juice needed to be stored in new unused skins. During this process, fermentation was not the goal when you followed this process. Now, having knowledge of this, Jesus in turn used this process to illustrate, illustrate I'm sorry, a theological point, describing the corrupting nature of the Pharisees' teaching on fasting in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wine skins, or else the wine skins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. There you have it. Even the final verse of this parable clearly tells us that when this process was followed, preservation was the goal, not fermentation. We see this in the phrase, both are preserved in verse 17. The fact of the matter is that newly freshly squeezed grape juice, again it's translated wine in our English Bible, is pure and unadulterated and must be stored in a safe environment in order to prevent decay and fermentation. Aged grape juice, on the other hand, can be stored anywhere since it, it has already begun to decay and is already corrupted. In our English Bible, the same Greek word oinos is used whether it's talking, to, talking about fermented or unfermented grape juice. So what Jesus is saying in this parable 
Well, the point Jesus is making in this parable is that the words of scripture, the written Torah, was not to be mixed with the traditions and teachings of the religious leaders of this day, the oral Torah. Doing so would corrupt the pure teachings of scripture. It's from this context we should interpret this parable, which is why I encourage those from our audience who desire solid biblical scholarship on this subject to read the book, Wine in the Bible, a biblical study on the use of alcoholic beverages by Samuel Bakaachi, published in 1989. Many believe that as long as they avoid getting drunk, it is not sinful to drink alcohol. Isn't that okay? I understand that many believe this, but they must also realize that drunkenness is a relative term. It could mean one thing to one person and a totally different thing to another person. I mean, what is it after all? Is it being a little buzzed? Is it being a little tipsy? Is it one drink, two drinks, maybe three? Who sets the standards? In spite of all the negative consequences alcohol brings to our society, I'm surprised that any Christian would advocate its use. How can a Christian walk in the spirit as the Apostle Paul encouraged us to do when alcohol and drugs are the very things that prevent us from doing so? And let's not forget the negative effects on our actions in the areas that alcohol brings about that could have, how it could affect other people. Allow me to repeat Jesus' warning once more regarding this. Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through 47. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it will be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, I encourage our listeners who desire solid biblical scholarship on this subject to read the book that I continually plug, Wine in the Bible, a Biblical Study on the Use of Alcoholic Beverages, published in 1989. What final advice would you like to give our audience regarding this subject? Well, I encourage every Christian under the sound of my voice who thinks it is okay to consume alcohol to consider their thoughts and actions regarding this subject they very well could be heading down a slippery slope to even more sinister activities, using the Bible, of all things, to justify its use. Because drunkenness is a relative term, the only way to truly follow the biblical mandate laid out by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Church of Ephesus is to avoid the use of alcohol altogether. And we'll close with the reading of these verses in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 21. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dispensation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord 
giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. There you have it. We're going to close out this podcast, Christians and Alcohol, Main Point Ministries. I'm your host, Stephen Giles. And Tracy Giles. I hope this has been a blessing to you.